God's word this morning to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, and as you are doing so, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. As you are turning to Galatians chapter 6, let me also just take this opportunity very quickly to thank you who were here yesterday and participated in our fall church workday. I thoroughly enjoy our times together. There's something about standing shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and our sisters and putting both hands to the plow and accomplishing something. It, it, it's a glorious thing, and so I, I want to thank you for your involvement yesterday. Uh, let me say, if you missed it, we'll be doing it again in April of next year, so mark it on your calendar. Uh, let's read now. Uh, let me read now in your hearing from the end of Galatians chapter 6 verses 11 through 18. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord, for this is God's word to the church. Galatians six eleven. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. On Monday, Alice bought a parrot. Unfortunately, it didn't talk, so the next day she returned it to the pet store. Well, he needs a ladder, she was told, so she bought a ladder for the bird. But another day passed, and the parrot was still mute. Well, how about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The following day, one of those miniature plastic trees. The day after, a brand new shiny parrot toy. Come Sunday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened. There she was, parrot cage in hand, weeping, for her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word, the owner asked? Yes, Alice responded through her sobs. Right before he died, he looked at me and asked, does that pet store sell any food? (laughs) Beloved, the fact is there is much to distract us. And these things can be good or bad, but just as no amount of parrot amenities can make up for a lack of food, please hear this, neither can anything replace the gospel in the Christian's life. Without the gospel, like Alice's parrot, we 
are dead. And so the question for us is this. How do we keep the cross central? And maybe an even better question would be something like this. How would we know if we were? Redeeming grace, what would it look like for you and I to live, to live lives shaped by Christ and his cross? Well, as we come to this last sermon in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians, we return once again to the central theme of the whole letter. And that central theme is the cross. From beginning to end, this is a letter written to struggling churches, calling them to find refuge in the cross of Christ. Beloved, hear me well. The very gospel is a gospel of Christ's death on the cross. All the world is reconciled to God through the cross. We rebels have been brought into God's family by the cross. Our freedom from condemnation is found in the cross. And our very standing before God, eternal life, heaven itself, beloved, is wrapped up with the cross. The cross is absolutely central. So again, to return to that question, what would it look like for us to live lives where the cross is central? Well, our passage answers that question this morning in six ways. First, a cross-centered life aims to be humble, not prideful. I want to suggest that that is perhaps one of the quickest ways that you and I can know if we are gripped by the cross. Are you a man or woman who is prideful or are you one who is humble? Because those who have been captivated, caught up as it were by the glory of the cross of Christ, such a person will inevitably be humble. This stands in stark contrast, though, with those false teachers plaguing the churches of Galatia. They were swollen with pride. And Paul exposes them for it in verses 12 and 13. Because he writes, It is those, speaking of the false teachers, it is those false teachers who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those, verse 13, who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Notice, the apostle levels two charges against these opponents of the cross. To begin with, he says that they were promoters. Promoters. In an effort, verse 12, to make a good showing, that is to say, these false teachers desiring to make much of self, to have, to have them be in the limelight, what did they do? 
Well, they compelled these churches in Galatia to be circumcised. To which you should ask, why? What, What end does that serve? Well, the simple answer is this. They wanted their followers. They wanted their disciples. They wanted, dare I say, their groupies. Unlike John the Baptist who declared, Christ must increase and I must decrease, these false teachers were all about saying, I must increase and Christ must decrease. They were all about promoting themselves. Paul also turns the screw. They were also pretenders. He goes for the jugular in verse 13. For even those who are circumcised, even these, even these false teachers, they do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You catch that? Even though they were all about the law, all about making Moses Lord of their life, it turns out these false teachers were just phoning it in. Right? They wanted you to go full varsity. They wanted you to cross every T and dot every I, but they themselves were more than content to remain on the JV squad. Like most Pharisees, and that is true of the Pharisees of old and our modern-day Pharisees that plague so many churches, Like most Pharisees, these guys were far more interested in making sure everyone else was doing the right things, but they weren't so worried about themselves. If that wasn't bad enough, notice their concern. In verse 13, Paul says that they may boast in your flesh, and I don't want to be too graphic here, but maybe we might say in the lack thereof, right? I'm not going to explain circumcision, but, but you see the pun here, that they're wanting to boast in your flesh. In other words, these false teachers, they just wanted their spiritual trophies, That's really what got them out of bed in the morning. They would wake up, and before their feet hit the floor, they would think about the potential book sales of the day. The the new converts that they would have to their ministry. The traffic to their website. Their their social media followers. This bigger and better brand recognition. This is what made them tick. But of course, this is nothing but ugly vanity. Redeeming grace to live a cross-centered life will mean we aim to be humble, not prideful. Or maybe we could say it this way, we'll want Christ and his gospel to take center stage. Not us. Not us. Second, and intimately related to this, A cross-centered life boasts in the bloody cross, not the shiny mirror. Verse 13, if I can put it this way, is something of Paul's life verse. And maybe it should be ours as well. Paul confesses in verse 14, But for me, uh, I'm sorry, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, let me ask you, what are you boasting in? Are you boasting in you? In what you've done? 
the, the life you've lived, the willpower you've mustered up, the religious experience that you've had. Christian, what are you glorying in? Now, it's at this point where sometimes Christians can go sideways because maybe in an overreaction, we might think to ourselves, well, well we're never to boast. Christians might think boasting is entirely off limits. That's nonsense. You are going to boast. You will boast. You do boast. You can't not. In this regard, it's sort of like worship. We all worship, and we all worship because we were all made to worship. All of our hearts will inevitably gravitate toward someone or something, and we will worship them or it. The same is true when it comes to boasting. God made us to worship, and God made us to boast. Just not in ourselves, not in the mirror. We are to boast, beloved, in the cross of Christ. To which you might say, well, fair enough, but what does that look like? How does one boast, verse 14, in the cross? John Stott captures the idea this way. It means to boast in, glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, and live for the cross. Stott continues, the object of our boast, hear this, fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, Stott says, our boast is our obsession. Christian, what is your obsession? Is it the cross? Like a magnet, does the cross pull your affections and your wonder to it? Like gravity, does the, does the cross keep your feet firmly planted where they belong, lest you float off into outer space? What are you boasting in? What are you obsessed with? Is it the cross? Or are you too busy buffing out that shiny mirror so that you can see that pretty face staring back at you? Third now, a cross-centered life is one that treasures the gospel, not the world. Put your eyes back on verse 14 for a sec. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor turned spy, famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that is true. To be a Christian is to be one who has died. Died to sin. Died to self. Died to our old life. When the Spirit of God unites us to Christ by faith, the first thing we are united to is Christ's death. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Christian, you've died 
And you've died not of natural causes. You've died by crucifixion. In fact, Paul actually mentions a triple crucifixion in verse 14, doesn't he? The first and most obvious, of course, is Christ's crucifixion. It was there upon that bloody cross where the Lord Jesus Christ, the unique God-man, won our redemption. He did so on the cross. Through His death, we have life. But in Paul's mind, that's not the only crucifixion that took place. We are also told in verse 14 that the world has been crucified. The world has been crucified to the Christian. When Paul speaks of the world here, he's no doubt referring to everything outside of Christ which man seeks, by which man seeks his glory and puts his trust. Think of it this way. Think of money or success or health or power or approval. Paul is saying all of it, all that the world would dangle out in front of you and I, it has all been done away with. As a Christian, it has lost its appeal. It no longer charms us. Why? It's dead. It's been crucified. It's rotting up on that corpse. The birds are are picking at it. The world has been crucified to you and I. It's dead. We don't want that anymore. Who would? There's still a third crucifixion in verse 14. Because Paul adds, and I, to the world. As a Christian, the world hated Paul. It loathed him, wanted nothing to do with him. Why? Because Paul was cross-centered. Hear this. He refused to boast in the vain, trivial nonsense of his day, and the world hates when you do that. Because the world lives for all of that stuff. Mark my words, church, the world hates Christ and hates his cross, and therefore the world will hate those who identify with Christ and his cross. So let me ask you, brother or sister, do you love the world? Do you treasure what it offers? Let me ask it this way. Can your dreams be fulfilled by what the world offers? Or to go out from the other direction, are your nightmares the kind where you lose the things of the world? If so, then you are not treasuring the gospel. Remember, the world is dead to you, and you are dead to the world. It's Chernobyl. There's nothing left. It's all been decimated. Find your life in Christ. That brings us to the fourth mark 
a cross-centered life esteems spiritual transformation, not merely external rituals. Lend your ears to verse 15. And as you do, if, if you can, try for a moment and put yourself in the shoes of the Judaizers or, or even of the early Christians. Pretend for a moment that you are Jewish. And as you do, as, as, you, as you're sort of cosplaying here, remember, to be a Jew meant you were circumcised. For thousands of years, that's how you entered the covenant community. It was through your circumcision. With that in mind, listen to verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. I'm going to read that again because it is jarring. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. I don't think that we can imagine how revolutionary this sort of declaration is. Keep in mind, it is this sort of attitude that resulted in Paul being chased from city to city throughout the whole book of Acts and the whole Roman Empire. Remember who chased Paul from town to town? Was it the Romans? No, they couldn't care less. The Romans only got involved when things got out of control. Who chased Paul from town to town? It was the Jews. Why? Because Paul was saying to the Jews, Abraham is not enough. Moses is not enough. Merely external rituals is not what God is after. Now it's true, such accruedments might have some cultural significance. I'm not downplaying that. But the point is, in the grand scheme of things, it is all utterly meaningless. What really matters, Paul would say, is Christ. And for that, Paul was despised, particularly by the unbelieving Jews of his day. Let's lean into this a little bit more, though. When I say that what really matters is Christ, the reason that is true is because Christ, upon his cross, has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Think about it. On that dark afternoon, on a hill just outside of Jerusalem, sin's debt was paid. God's wrath was placated. Satan's accusations were silenced. The law's demands were satisfied. That all took place on the cross. And here's the punchline. Here's Paul's point. External rituals can never do what Christ has already done. And this... These are external rituals, whether they are sanctioned by Scripture or not. They can never do what Christ has done. So let's be specific. To put it in the context of the Galatians, circumcision doesn't cut deep enough to get to the heart of stone. 
or to fast forward and, and bring it into our day and age, baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Partaking of the bread and wine at the Lord's table doesn't make you Christ's. Attending a church service doesn't make you the church. Singing hymns won't make you a saint. And memorizing Scripture, signing a membership covenant, or even wearing a tie and jacket on a Sunday morning, none of that will make you, end of verse 15, a new creation. What counts for anything, as Paul says, what truly matters, really all that matters is this, are you Christ's? Have you been joined to him? To use Jesus' own language, have you been born again? To use Paul's language here, are you a new creation? And what that means is, have you been made a new creation through the sovereign and scandalous work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel? Meaning, you have had your eyes opened to see your sin for what it really is. And in seeing yourself as a guilty sinner, you have fled to the beauty and the power and the sufficiency of Christ crucified for you. That is what it means to be a new creation. It means that the Spirit of God has breathed new life into you. You've been birthed, as it were, into the kingdom of Christ. And the Holy Spirit of God has begun to transform you from the inside out. And no amount of external rituals can do that. That's the rub, isn't it? The law can't do that. You can't do that. Merely clipping some piece of foreskin won't do that. Your religious rights won't do that. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ fixed upon a cross, dying the death you deserve, can give you new life. Only Christ beaten, bloodied, and buried can create new life where there was once only death. And only Christ raised up from the dead, resurrected in power and glory, can make you and I a new creation. This is why Paul would tell the Philippians, put no confidence in the flesh. Don't trust in anything you've ever done or anything that you will do. You have to put all your confidence in Christ. Meaning, still in Philippians 3, you have to be willing to count all your religious trophies as dung. So long as you get Christ. We are to lean upon Christ 
like a man with broken legs leans upon his crutches. We really have no other hope. As we inch ever closer to the end of this letter, let me mention still a fifth mark of a cross-centered life. A cross-centered life walks in the gospel, not the gospel. Now forgive me, but gospel is one of those words I heard a little while back that I liked, and so I, I introduced it to you. You may remember, gospel is what Christ has done for guilty sinners so that we would be accepted in God's sight. The, the gospel refers to Christ and His work upon the cross and that, that you and I are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. Gospel is a mixing of law and gospel. Gospel will say something like, yes, Christ died for sinners. Now you'd better work really hard and do your part if you want in on those goods. That's gospel. It's a mixing of law and gospel. The gospel puts the accent on Christ and His cross. Gospel puts the accent on you and your performance. Now, I bring that up here because Paul pronounces a blessing, a benediction, really. Upon who? Well, those who are described as, end of verse 16, the Israel of God, which raises a really important question. Who is the Israel of God? Well, in answering that question, perhaps it's easier at the beginning to say, we know who this is not referring to. Who this is not referring to is merely those who are ethnically Jewish. And we know that's not who Paul has in mind, because if that's what Paul has in mind, then it really does upend the whole book of Galatians. What do I mean? Well, I mean that if you zoom out for a moment, we will remember that Paul has gone out of his way over and over and over again to remind us that it is not the blood flowing through your veins that matters. It is the blood that flowed from Christ's veins that matters. Or, as we just saw a moment ago, your circumcision isn't what counts. But Christ's cross is what counts. We saw all throughout chapter 3 of Galatians, what is definitional for the people of God is not your last name, not your family tree, and not your heritage. But what defines the people of God is Christ, His grace, and His gospel. To suggest otherwise would play into the hands of the Judaizers who, remember, would argue that to be part of the true Israel, one has to be circumcised. 
Again, such a view would contradict nearly every syllable of every word that Paul has said throughout Galatians about dirty, rotten Gentiles like you and me being children of Abraham, sons of God, and part of the new covenant. So the Israel of God those who are the recipients of this benediction, they are not simply those who have the right Jewish birth certificate. It is rather those who, verse 16, walk by this rule. In other words, the Israel of God is those who boast in Christ and His cross. That's the rule or standard of verse 16, isn't it? The rule is, and again, we have seen this throughout Galatians, Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Through his cross, he really has redeemed sinful humanity. So that we guilty sinners have literally no hope outside of and apart from Christ's cross. For it is in and through and by that cross that our sins are atoned for. But notice, this is a rule, verse 16, that we are to walk by. My point? Well, we aren't called to simply give a casual head nod to the gospel. It's not enough here to just mindlessly check the box like no doubt you and I do when we get that software update on our phone. Click here, agree to the terms, plug it in. Yeah, 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 whatever. No one's ever read that stuff. Well, that attitude won't do. We are to walk by this rule. In other words, we are to be committed to this. We walk in it. We live in light of it. We stake our lives upon it. The gospel of Christ crucified for us, that is our everything. We will not mix law and gospel. Instead, we will tear up our resumes, we will throw them in the trash, and we will fix our gaze upon Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what it means to be the Israel of God. Sixth and finally now, a cross-centered life longs to please Christ, not man. Consider this. As Paul prepares to bring this passionate and pointed letter to a close, he does so by reminding us of what he suffered for Christ's sake. He writes in verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This is referring to his bumps and bruises he got for being a follower of Christ. But let's be clear, Paul is not bragging. His point here in, in verse 17 isn't something like, hey, look at me, I'm a super Christian. That's not the point. What lies behind all of this is the simple truth that perhaps we tend to forget, and that is this, the cross is offensive. It's true, 1 Corinthians 1, the gospel is foolishness. That's all true. After all, and I mean no blasphemy by it, but what does some dead Jew on a cross some 2,000 years ago have to do with my standing before God on Judgment Day? 
If, if you think about it, that's pretty stinking wild. But the cross is not just foolishness to the natural man. It's also utterly offensive. Why? Why is the gospel so hostile? Well, because the gospel shouts. And the gospel shouts that we are sinners. That's the message of the cross. With a blowhorn, we hear ringing in our ears, you can't do enough. You aren't good enough. In fact, you aren't good at all. In fact, there are no such thing as good people. You see, the fact of the matter is, the cross stands in history as a large neon flashing light. And it reads that we are ripe for judgment. When you look at the cross of Christ and you see pain and blood and abandon and horror and wrath, what you are supposed to see is what you deserve for your sin. When you look at the cross, what you are supposed to see is hell on earth. That is what the cross is shouting. The cross is shouting, this is what sinners deserve for their sin. But thankfully, the cross doesn't just shout. It also sings. Where sin increased, Romans 5.20, grace abounded all the more. The cross sings a sweet song of mercy and grace. A song of forgiveness and righteousness. A song of life and liberty. You see, the cross is good news for the sinner who would run to the Savior fixed on that cross. For in so doing, you and I find not just a powerful Savior, but a precious Savior. Know this. Be utterly convinced of it. Stake your life upon it. Running to Christ will most assuredly mean all your sins are forgiven. Praise God. But you'd also better understand that it means immediately opposition from the world. And that's to come full circle what Paul is alluding to there in verse 17. As a follower of Christ, he suffered for Christ. And, and I, Paul knew this perhaps better than anyone. He, as he says, bore the marks of Christ in his body. He was beaten, afflicted, tortured, stoned, left for dead, You'd see Paul, he walked with a limp, and he needed Tylenol to get to sleep. That's the cost. That's the price of admission. You see, if suffering ain't on your resume, then chances are it's not a Christian resume. Because Christians suffer. That's why Paul would visit Freshly planted churches, Acts 14.22. 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I'm sorry if you were hearing this for the first time, but to be a Christian is to be exposed to all manner of suffering. Just again, think of Christ. He didn't retire early on the shores of Galilee and enjoy Mai Tais. He was crucified. If they did that to our Master, then why are so many of us convinced that we are entitled to beaches and Mai Tais? The question then is why continue? Why ought we to persist to identify with Christ? Why not renounce Him? Turn your back on Him and go back to the ease and comfort that this world offers you and I. Well, I'll tell you why. Because the heart of the true Christian is one that above all longs to please Christ, not man. The Christian knows in his bones that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18 Beloved, it is true. You get suffering now. But glory is what awaits you. Glory is what Christ has won for you. So I ask you once again, redeeming grace, what does it look like for us to live cross-centered lives? It means we'll aim to be humble, we'll boast in the cross, we'll treasure the gospel, we'll esteem spiritual transformation, we'll walk in the gospel, and we will long to please Christ. And all of this is critical. It's all important. It's not something that we have the luxury of just sort of brushing aside. And we know this for many reasons, but at this point, I would simply draw your attention to verse 11. Because Paul writes, literally, he writes this part, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And then he proceeds to speak of the cross of Christ. All that we have seen together this morning. Here's why I bring this up. It was quite common in the ancient world for letters like Galatians. Remember, that's what this is. This is a letter. It was very common for letters to be written by a scribe or an amanuensis or, as we might say today, a secretary. This was altogether normal. It was the normal, customary practice. In fact, quite a few of Paul's letters were written in exactly this way. He would dictate them to a scribe who would in turn write down what he said. And then at the very end of the letter, Paul, or whoever the author was, but, but in this case, Paul would grab the pen and he would simply sort of sign the end. And, and this would not only establish something of a personal touch to the letter, but it would also give its stamp of authenticity. You, the recipient, would know, okay, so-and-so 
wrote this. Here in Galatians, though, things are a bit different. Instead of waiting to just sign off at the end, which again is how Paul does it throughout the New Testament, here Paul picks up the pen and he actually writes the last paragraph himself. This this paragraph that we've been looking at this morning. Why? Why break with tradition, so to speak? Well, I want to suggest to you, because this last paragraph or so in Galatians is utterly critical. The centrality of the cross is a non-negotiable. It must be pressed upon the hearts and minds of the readers. This really is a matter of life and death. And so Paul leans over. He grabs the reed pen from his secretary. He says, let me drive for a moment. He dips it into the ink and he literally writes these words to us. He writes, as it were, in all caps. See with what large letters. He writes in all caps to get our attention. And so, Redeeming Grace, here is my encouragement to you. As we conclude our sermon series in Galatians, make the cross central. Settle for nothing less. Love it. Look to it. Live in light of it. And do so because the cross is the vivid demonstration of Christ's sufficiency for you. He died for sinners, satisfied the law's demands, propitiated the wrath of God, and brought you into the family of God. And Christ has done all of this through the cross. So trust in Him, beloved. Our gracious God and Father, We pray that your Spirit would press these wonderful and glorious truths upon our souls this morning. We pray that we as individuals and as families and as a church, that we really would be a people who make the cross central in our lives. And even when we don't, and we don't, it is the very fact of the cross that redeems us, that forgives us, that empowers us. Help us to walk in light of these truths. Strengthen us by your Spirit and grow us in grace this morning, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.